Welcome to Over in Smith, an H.P. Lovecraft podcast where we read the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft. We usually make an audiobook if the story isn't too boring, racist, or both. Uh, today, we're going to be reading the fourth chapter of uh, The Shadow Out of Time. And with me is somebody who might have had their body forcibly taken by an alien species and then traded back a little bit later. Uh, Art, how's that going? Hi, uh, this is just a metaphor for being trans. Oh my god. I'm, I'm calling it right now. We're trans in Lovecraft right now. <laughs> We've already queered them, so, I mean, yeah. not that much of a stretch. Well, obviously he's queer. Obviously. Uh, but yeah, today we're going to be reading chapter four, last chapter, for a recap. We learn more about the, what he what the main character calls the great race which we're pretty sure is the yith um and or about white the, people depending on who you're talking to i mean <sighs> i mean i don't believe it i mean I, look they, you could barely be outside in the sun without without it hurting you so that's like, why we gotta that's why we gotta steal other people's bodies didn't you say get out that was the whole point so the air isn't too spicy <laughs> In summertime. <laughs> so we could go outside. Um, but yeah, we learn more about the culture of the Yith. Um, how it works when they switch bodies. How they treat the people. Because when they switch bodies with somebody, that person is in the Yith's body. While they're busy running around, I don't know, um, fucking bitches and getting paid. Or whatever Yith do. Um, yeah, that's. I'm pretty sure it's it's more like fucking paid and getting getting bitches that's the same thing that's the same thing <laughs> you can't same thing. It around. <laughs> oh how the turntables <laughs> uh, you, you can't you- yak off spirit off that one you can't <laughs> damn it <laughs> look it's perfect um <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we learned about what happens when they switch bodies with somebody, what they do with that person who's in the yes body. We learned that the great race was probably a whole other alien race that switched places with the original consciousnesses of the great race uh, and let them die on their dying planet. And that they'll probably do it again eventually. Well, that's that's how you that's how you uh, fuck bitches and get paid. You uh, let another entire race of people who took over your bodies die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, um, they also went through like what happens if the Yith dies and what happens if the person dies. Like what? Because I mean, that <sighs> Yith be stuck in that person's body, or that person would be stuck in that Yith's body. So they went over like what happens with that. Basically, yeah, it's just a bunch of paperwork, mostly. Yeah. You don't need to pay too much attention. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie; it kind of sounded like that. <laughs> 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 like, especially when it's a person stuck in the yes body, it sounds like it's just a lot of like doing paperwork and babysitting them. <laughs> like, yes, you're stuck in an alien body, but also like it's not that bad. Now you get to read all these books, I guess. Have fun. Oh wait, does that mean I get to read all the Locked Tomb series before everyone else? Or yes. after everyone else? Yes. Or before? I yes. don't know. All yes. All of those things. 
I get to um, read the end of all the series that I've been waiting for. <laughs> but yes, uh, so we learned about that. He went over um, all that stuff that he somehow knows about the Yith from reading, I guess. Anyways, but yeah, we're at the point. I, 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 I find it weird that they spent like an entire, uh, like an entire chapter just talking about how weird the Yith stick is. <laughs> like, the the Yith stick. <laughs> yeah, like it has two curves, and they don't make a lot of sense. Yeah, like they're it, not Euclidean curves. Which <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> Semi-cyclopean. <laughs> the stick. The unknowable. <laughs> oh boy. Um, but so so this story does jump around in the timeline quite a bit. So we're like at the point where he so he went back to being a professor. And now he's quit again because he's like, eh, <laughs> I'd rather go discover more about this alien species than be an economy professor or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'd rather I'd rather discover about this rad uh, group of people that I met than than tell a bunch of impressionable young kids about how, uh, you know, communism is bad. And yeah, you shouldn't have single payer. Yeah. Healthcare <laughs> because it would make you lazy. Obviously. Obviously. Okay. Let's pick up where this left off. The Shadow Out of Time. Chapter 4. I continued, however, to keep a careful record of the outer dreams, which crowded upon me so thickly and vividly. Such a record, I argued, was of genuine value as a psychological document. The glimpses still seemed damnably like memories, though I fought off this impression with a goodly measure of success. In writing, I treated the phantasmata as things seen, but at all other times I brushed them aside like any gossamer illusions of the night. I never mentioned such matters in common conversation, though reports of them, filtering out as such things will, had aroused sundry rumors regarding my mental health. It is amusing to reflect these rumors were confined wholly to laymen, Without a single champion among physicians or psychologists. I like how he's like, it turns out you can't just bring up, oh, my body was hijacked by an alien for five years. And I remember being in that alien's body in like an, an, like a normal conversation with like a Taco Bell clerk. Well, not a Taco Bell clerk, but you can do it to uh, you can talk about that stuff uh, to your therapist whenever you realize that you're trans. Oh, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Oh my god, this really is a metaphor for trans. <laughs> for being trans. Yeah, like in the future, uh, once you get all the gender-affirming care, you're in like a new body that, that like, it feels like your body, but it's not. Oh my gosh. Feels like your old body, but it's not. But whatever. You know what and I'm it, talking about. Yeah, I get you. Of my visions after 1914, I will here mention only a few, since fuller accounts and records are at the disposal of the serious student. It is evident with time, the curious inhibition somewhat waned, for the scope of my visions vastly increased. They have never, though, become other than disjointed fragments, 
seemingly without clear motivation. Within the dreams, I seem gradually to acquire a greater and greater freedom of wandering. I floated through many strange buildings of stone, going from one to the other along mammoth underground passages, which seemed to form the common avenues of transit. Sometimes I encountered those gigantic sealed trap doors in the lowest level, around which such an aura of fear and forbiddenness clung. I saw tremendous tessellated pools and rooms of curious and inexplicable utensils of myriad sorts. Then there were the colossal caverns of intricate machinery whose outlines and purpose were wholly strange to me, and whose sound manifested itself only after years of dreaming. I may here remark that sight and sound were the only senses I've ever exercised in the visionary world. The real horror began in May 1915 when I first saw the living things. This was before my studies had taught me what, in view of the myths and case histories, to expect. As mental barriers wore down, I beheld great masses of thin vapor in various parts of the building and in the streets below. These steadily grew more solid and distinct until at last I could trace their monstrous outlines with comfortable ease. They seemed to be enormous iridescent cones about 10 feet high and 10 feet wide at the base and made up of some rigid, scaly, semi-elastic matter. From their apexes projected four flexible cylinder members, each a foot thick and of ridgy substance like that of the cones themselves. These members were sometimes contracted almost to nothing and sometimes extended to any distance up to about 10 feet. Terminating two of them were enormous claws or nippers. At the end of a third were four red trumpet-like appendages. The fourth terminated in an irregular yellowish globe, some two feet in diameter, and having three great dark eyes ranged along its central circumference. Surmounting its head were four slender gray stalks bearing flower-like appendages, whilst from its nether side dangled eight greenish antennae. Or tentacles. Wait, does it have four tentacles on its butt? <laughs> yep. <laughs> or, or, it's, or it's Dangus. <laughs> Eight tentacles on its Ooh. butt. Ooh. Ooh, and they're green. Oh. Yeah, they're like, Lo Lovecraft is, like, either describing, uh, like, a, like, his D and D character right now, or he's like really lovingly describing what he wants the NSFW artist to draw. <laughs> like you know, planes. Like make that, but like with titties. <laughs> <laughs> like that's him, but like this. <laughs> you know what? You know you know a traffic cone that. But sexy. Yeah, <laughs> you know traffic code that, but with titties <laughs> <laughs> and tentacles. <laughs> you get to decide where they are. Like surprise me on that one. I'm not too particular. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the the weirder the better. <laughs> Plain, but with titties. <laughs> I just had flashbacks to. My early internet use. 
Like, okay, part of me wants to go back to the old internet, but also um, I don't want to don't want a whole another generation to be desensitized to all the gore and weird porn we're desensitized to. No, you know, <laughs> no, I saw some things that nobody should see. Me too, but like also at the same time, like the current internet sucks. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. Oh, but you don't got to see a plane with titties out of nowhere. Oh, the, to be honest, that that was real slight. You know, I, I saw people being degloved. Oh, uh, fuck. Randomly, oh, so, you oh you're right. Yep, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, playing with titties is kind of like, you know, that's just kind of price you pay for. <laughs> Honestly, that is a million times better than seeing any of the degloving gore out there. Yeah, I've like, I'm so sensitized to gore. I'm just trying to read a spooky story, and then that shows up. Yeah. Anyway, <sighs> speaking of uh, plane with titties, let's let's get back to it. <laughs> a, a traffic cone with titties. <laughs> the great base of the central cone was fringed with a rubbery gray substance, which moved the whole entity through the expansion and contract. Their actions, though harmless, horrified me even more than their appearance. For it is not wholesome to watch monstrous objects doing what one was known only human beings to do. These objects moved intelligently around the great rooms, getting books from the shelves and taking them to the great tables, or vice versa, and sometimes writing diligently with a peculiar rod gripped in the greenish head tentacles. The huge nippers were used in carrying books and in conversation, speech consisting of a kind of clicking and scraping. The objects had no clothing, but wore satchels or knapsacks suspended from the top of the conical trunk, and they commonly carried their head and its supporting member at the level of the cone top, although it was frequently raised or lowered. The other three great members tended to rust downward, on the sides of the cone, contracted to about five feet each, but not in use. From their rate of reading, writing, and operating their machines, whose those on the table seemed somehow connected with thought, I concluded that their intelligence was enormously greater than man's. I'm picturing one of the cones wearing a cheeseburger backpack. Oh, that's cool. That's very cute. I like that. <laughs> they, they could put their books in there. For later. Uh, oh, have you seen the TikTok of Coney Haw Hawk, which is just a cone that? Yes. Uh, yeah, it just yes. somehow always land tricks, and it's just an actual cone it's on a just, skateboard. It's just legit a traffic cone on a skateboard. But it always lands tricks. It's because they're so bottom heavy, you know, like me. I I got a shirt recently and has Garfield on it. And it says, yeah, I got a BFA. And on the back it says, a big fucking ass. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do indeed have both a BFA, a Bachelor's of Fine Arts, and a big fucking ass. <laughs> I had to go find my BFA the other day. Not my big fucking ass. That is attached to me. That would be weird if you have to find it. Thankfully, I can never lose that. <laughs> I really hope you don't lose your big fucking ass. <laughs> that would be so upsetting if one day my big fucking ass just was gone. Disappeared. <sighs> Afterward, I saw them everywhere, swarming in all 
the great chambers and corridors, tending monstrous machines and vaulted crypts, and racing along the vast roads in gigantic boat-shaped cars. I ceased to be afraid of them, for they seemed to form supremely natural parts of their environment. Individual differences amongst them began to manifest, and a few appeared to be under some kind of restraint. These latter, though shewing no physical variation, had a diversity of gestures and habits which marked them off not only from the majority, but very largely from one another. They wrote a great deal in what seemed to my cloudy vision as vast variety of characters. Never the typical curvilinear hieroglyphs of the majority. A few, I fancied, used our own familiar alphabet. Most of them worked much more slowly than the general mass of the entities. All this time, my own part in the dream seemed to be that of a disembodied consciousness with a range of vision wider than the normal, floating freely about yet confined to the ordinary avenues and speeds of travel. Not until August 1915. Did any suggestions of bodily existence begin to harass me? I say harass because the first phase was a purely abstract, though infinitely terrible association of my previously noted body loathing with the scenes of my visions. For a while, my chief concern during dreams was to avoid looking down at myself, and I recall how grateful I was for the total absence of large mirrors in the strange rooms. I was mightily troubled by the fact that I always saw the great tables, whose height could not be under ten feet, from a level not below that of their surfaces. And then the morbid temptation to look down at myself became greater and greater, till one night I could not resist it. At first, my downward glance revealed nothing whatever. A moment later, I perceived that this was because my head lay at the end of a flexible neck of enormous length. Retracting this neck and gazing down very sharply, I saw the scaly, rugose, iridescent bulk of a vast cone ten feet tall and ten feet wide at the base. And that was when I waked half of Arkham with my screaming as I plunged madly up from the abyss of sleep. Only after weeks of hideous repetition did I grow half reconciled to these visions of myself and monstrous form. In the dreams, I now moved bodily among the other unknown entities, reading terrible books from the endless shelves, and writing for hours at the great tables with a stylus managed by the green tentacles that hung down from my head. Scratches of what I read and wrote would linger in my memory. These were horrible annals of other worlds and other universes, and of stirrings of formless life outside of all universes. Oh, all universes? Oh. I normally just go, I might just go with like the one or two, because, you know, like, I'm, I'm not going to do all universes. I'm like, yeah, I don't have the time or the effort for that. Like, at some point, I got to take a nap. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, maybe, maybe like six universes, if you get me early enough. Yeah. Otherwise, like, I'm going to go to maybe two, then I got to take it, I got to eat lunch, then I'm going to take a nap. When I wake up from that nap, I usually have dinner. And then, like, it's just too late. Why would I go out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I go to bed. Yeah, like, I, it turns out, like, I put on, like, too heavy of a coat. So, like, it's just uncomfy. Like, I yeah. just really just try to get back home so I can just, like, you know, put it away. Yeah. I'm just, it turns out my pants are too tight and I just want to go home and take them off. Yeah. 
<laughs> my jeans were not as stretchy as I thought they were. I want to put on sweatpants. <laughs> there were records of strange orders of beings which had peopled the world in forgotten pasts, and frightful chronicles of grotesque-bodied intelligences which would people it millions of years after the death of the last human being. And I learned of chapters in human history whose existence no scholar of today has ever suspected. Most of these writings were in a language of the hieroglyphs, which I studied in a queer way with the aid of droning machines, and which was evidently an agglutinative speech with root systems utterly unlike any found in human languages. Other volumes in languages I knew. Extremely clever pictures, both inserted in the records and forming separate collections, aided me immensely. And all the time, I seemed to be settling down a history of my own age in English. On waking, I could recall only minute and meaningless scraps of the unknown tongues which my dream self had mastered, though whole phrases of the history stayed with me. I learned, even before my waking self had studied the parallel cases or the old myths from which the dreams doubtless sprang, that the entities around me were of the world's greatest race, which had conquered time and had sent exploring minds into every age. I knew, too, that I had been snatched from my age while another used my body in that age, and that a few of the other strange forms housed similarly captured minds. I seemed to talk in some odd language of claw clickings with exiled intellects from every corner of the solar system. There was a mind from the planet we know as Venus, which would live in calculable epochs to come, and one from an outer moon of Jupiter six million years in the past. Of earthy minds, there were some from the winged, star-headed, half-vegetable race of the Pathologian Antarctic, and one from the reptile people of fabled Valusia. three from the furry, pre-human, hyperborean worshippers of Thagathoa, one from the holy, abominable Toktos. Two from the arachnid denizens of Earth's last age. Five from the hardy Kaleoparis species, immediately following mankind. Three from the really sexy catboy planet, where, like, you're a little <laughs> uncomfortable being around them. But, like, like, have you ever seen, like, Finster? Uh, you know, the person who's been forcibly feminized, but it's like kind of uncomfortably hot for someone who's a straight dude. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, sorry, a straight dude who's being forcibly feminized by their audience who definitely are the femboys. <laughs> 100%. There are I'm just saying. Okay, I'm just saying. Like, I would. Thousands of dollars. But yeah, it's the force. It's the it's a fib boy. It's a fib boy cat. Uh, it's a fib cat boy planet that these like yes. real comfortable around. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Five from the hardy Coleoptera species, immediately following mankind, to which the great race was someday to transfer its keenest minds in mass in the face of horrible peril, and several from different branches of humanity. I talked with the mind of Yang Li, a philosopher from the cruel empire of San Chan, which is to come in AD 5000, with that of a general of the great-headed brown people who held South Africa in BC 50,000, with that of a 12th century Florentine monk named Bartholomew Corsi, 
and with that of King of Lamar, who had ruled that terrible polar land 100,000 years before the Inux came from the west to engulf it. And with that of Nugsoth, a magician of the Dark Conquerors of AD 16,000. With that of a Roman named Titus Sempronius Palacis, who had been a quaestor in Sulla's time. And with that of Kephanes, an Egyptian of the 14th dynasty, who told me the hideous secret of Nyarlathotep. With that of a priest of Atlantis's Middle Kingdom. With that of Suffolk gentleman of Cromwell's day, James Woodville and with that of a court astronomer of pre-Inca Peru, with that of the Australian physicist Neville Kingston Brown, who will die in A.D. 2518. Spoilers! God, yeah, fuck! (laughs) (laughs) Man! Don't tell me! (laughs) I was was in the middle of reading that history book. Christ! Damn it! (laughs) Neville is my favorite character. Now I can't read it. <laughs> With that of an archmage of vanished ye in the Pacific, and that of Theodetes and Greco-Bacterian, official of t- BC 200, and that of an aged Frenchman of Louis XVIII's time named Pierre-Louis Montmagny. With that of Cromya, a Sumerian chieftain of BC 15,000, and with so many others that my brain cannot hold the shocking secrets and dizzying marvels I learned from them. I waked each morning in a fever, sometimes frantically trying to verify or discredit such information, as fell within the range of modern human knowledge. Traditional facts took on new and doubtful aspects, and I marveled at the dream-fancy mysteries the past may conceal and trembled at the menaces the future may bring forth. What was hinted in the speech of post-human entities of the late of mankind produced such an effect on me that I will not set it down here. After man, there would be mighty beetle civilization, the bodies of whose members the cream of the great race would seize when the monstrous doom overtook the Elder World. The what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now you see why it paused. <laughs> the cream of the great race, dude. You could just say jizz. That's fine. <laughs> you could just say they fucked. It's okay. <laughs> oh fuck! Oh my god! <laughs> now you see why I paused. It was so out of place. <laughs> Damn, that, that's a very sus. Uh, we we been talking about we talk about cream all of a sudden. I'm not ready for this. You know it's you know you do get that good good whatever that cream gets all down there. <laughs> it's like in it's like in WAP. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole line about it. <laughs> 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 like not only not only do you get the cream of the great race, but it also sounds like you're stirring some macaroni. Cheese. <laughs> they they the great race wants to pack wants to park their Big Mac truck in the Beetle Civilization's little garage. <laughs> <laughs> uh. God. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, even years later, WAP is still 
uh, one of the greatest uh, <laughs> lyric has some of the greatest lyrics of our time. <laughs> when, when, when we stopped at cream. Oh my gosh. we okay we have we can't we can't we can't (laughs) okay the the, okay i found it the bodies of whose members the cream of the great race would seize when the monstrous doom overtook the elder world so they're talking about like cream of the croc which is still not a good yeah, saying yeah, it's just like if you just say cream of the crop it's way better the cream just makes it oh my god like is it just is it like how we uh, like it's hard uh, it's like you can't use the word piss anymore because almost every time someone says it it's because of sex yes okay unless it's in the context of go piss girl yeah <laughs> or or I don't have to. I don't have to vamp. I can edit this. Hey, little piss baby. Okay. <laughs> also, an acceptable use of the word piss. <laughs> okay. Also, you can't use the word peg because I immediately think of. Oh someone. my god! I know, right? It's not my fault that the world is gross. Oh yeah, the people are. I'm just here to make sure it stays gross. Listen, <laughs> I. You could put. Wherever, whatever, wherever you want, as long as everybody involved is okay with it. Yeah. I don't have to witness it, though, nor do I need to hear about it later. (laughs) I don't. I don't know. I feel like you need to hear about it. If you really have to tell me, (laughs) (laughs) I won't like it. (laughs) But I also can't stop you. <laughs> from speaking your accursed words at me. <laughs> oh, okay. Later, as the Earth's span closed, the transferred minds would again migrate through time and space to another stopping place in the bodies of the bulbous vegetable cold planet, burying to its horror-filled core before the utter end. Meanwhile, in my dreams, I wrote effortlessly in that history of my own age, which I was preparing, half voluntarily and half through the promises of increased library and travel opportunities for the Great Race's central archives. The archives were in a colossal subterranean structure near the city center, which I came to know well through frequent labors and consultations, meant to last as long as the race and to withstand the fiercest of Earth's convulsions. This titan respiratory surpassed all other buildings in massive mountain-like firmness of its construction. The records written or printed on great sheets of a curiously tenacious cellulose fabric were bound into books that opened from the top and were kept in individual cases of a strange, extremely light, rustless metal of grayish hue, decorated with mathematical designs and bearing the title in the great race's curvilinear hieroglyphics. These cases were stored in tiers of rectangular vaults, like closed lock shelves, wrought of the same rustless metal and fastened by knobs with intricate turnings. My own history was assigned a specific place in the vaults of the lowest or vertebrate level, the section devoted to the culture of mankind out of the furry and reptilian races, immediately preceding it in terrestrial dominance. 
but none of the dreams ever gave me a full picture of daily life. All were the merest misty, disconnected fragments, and it is certain that these fragments were not unfolded in their rightful sequence. I have, for example, a very imperfect idea of my own living arrangements in the dream world, though I seem to have possessed a great stone room of my own. My, my restrictions as a prisoner gradually disappeared, so that some of the visions included vivid travels over the mighty jungle roads, sojourns in strange cities, and explorations of some of the vast, dark, windowless ruins from which the great race shrank in curious fear. There were also long sea voyages in enormous, many-decked boats of incredible swiftness, and trips over wild regions in closed projectile-like airships, lifted and moved by electrical repulsion. Beyond the wide, warm ocean were other cities of the great race, and on one far continent I saw the crude villages of the black-snouted winged creatures who would evolve as a dominant stock after the great race had sent its foremost minds into the future to escape creeping horror. Flatness and exuberant green life were always the keynote of the scene. Hills were low and sparse and usually displayed signs of volcanic forces. Of the animals I saw, I could write volumes. All were wild, for the great race mechanized culture had long since done away with domestic beasts. While food was wholly vegetable or synthetic, clumsy reptiles of great bulk floundered in steaming morasses, fluttered in the heavy air, or spouted in the seas and lakes. And among these, I fancied I could vaguely recognize lesser, archaic prototypes of many forms. Dinosaurs, pterodactyls, ichthyosaurus, labyrinthodonts, ramphorycti, plesiosaurs, and like made familiar through paleontology. Of birds or mammals, there were none that I could discern. The ground and swamps were constantly alive with snakes, lizards, and crocodiles, while insects buzzed incessantly amidst the lush vegetation. On far out at sea, unspied and unknown monsters spouted monstrous columns of foam into the vaporous sky. Once I was taken under the ocean in a gigantic submarine vessel with searchlights and glimpsed some living horrors of awesome magnitude. I saw also the ruins of incredible sunken cities and the wealth of crinoid, bacteopod, coral, and ethic life with everywhere abound. A physiology, psychology, folkways, and detailed history of the great race, my visions preserve but little information. And many of the scattered points I here set down were gleaned from my study of old legends and other cases rather than form my own dreaming. For in time, of course, my reading and research caught up with and past the dreams in many phases, so that certain dream fragments were explained in advance and formed verifications of what I had learned. This consolingly established my belief the similar reading and research accomplished by my secondary self had formed the source of the whole terrible fabric of pseudo-memories. The period of my dreams apparently was somewhat less than 150 million years ago, when the Paleozoic Age was giving place to the Mesozoic. The bodies occupied by the Great Race represented no surviving or even scientifically known line of terrestrial evolution, but were of a peculiar, closely homogeneous, 
and highly specialized organic type inclining as much the vegetable as to the animal state. Cell action was of a unique sort, almost precluding fatigue and wholly eliminating the need of sleep. Nourishment assimilated through the red trumpet-like appendages on one of the great flexible limbs was always semi-fluid and in many aspects wholly unlike the food of existing animals. The beings had but two of the senses which we recognize, sight and hearing, the latter accomplished through the flower-like appendages on the gray stalks above their heads, but of other and incomprehensible senses, not however well utilized by alien captive minds inhabiting their bodies, they possess many. Their three eyes were so situated as to give them a range of vision wider than normal. Their blood was a sort of deep greenish ichor of great thickness. They had no sex but reproduced through seeds or spores which clustered on their base and could be developed only underwater. Great shallow tanks were used for the growth of their young, which were, however, reared only in small numbers on account of the longevity of the individuals, four or five thousand years being the common lifespan. Markedly defective individuals were quietly disposed of as soon as their defects were noticed. Disease and the approach of death were, in absence of a sense of touch or physical pain, were recognized purely by visual symptom. The dead were incinerated with dignified ceremonies. Once in a while, as before mentioned, a key mind would escape death by forward projection in time, but such cases were not numerous. When one did occur, the exiled mind from the future was treated with the utmost kindness until the dissolution of its unfamiliar tenement. Do you think any of the, the Yith was just like, I don't know about here, but I think dinosaurs were was that. <laughs> yeah, and just projected into like a Tyrannosaurus Rex's mind. Yeah, which, by the way, uh, scientists say are, uh, it would have had a lot more feathers. Yes. And also the way that they're, uh, they would have squawked like yes. a parrot more than roar. Yeah, actually, raptors probably sound a lot like songbirds, but pitched down quite a bit. Yeah, so if you ever want to see a giant chicken that will eat uh, rotting meat and also sounds like a parrot, look at a T-Rex. Yeah, there you go. It might even headbutt you to death. (laughs) Yeah, like like a cat will, whatever. You don't feed it in time. (laughs) Love it into it. Yeah, I would also project my mind into a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I would probably project my mind into like a really, like a like a rich cat, you know? Oh, just yeah. Just like live, live the life oh. for a little bit. Oh, yeah. 100%. Uh, a rich family's pet cat, number one in what I project my mind into. Yeah, because uh, twofold. First off, I get to hurt rich people with no, uh, with, with impunity. Yeah. Because I'm a cat. And, yeah. uh, second, you know, I can just put my butthole wherever I want to. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's fun. Like, I can kind of do that now, but I feel bad because, like, I have to eat off of that. But if I'm a cat, I don't have to care. Oh my god. <laughs> I have my orange boy with me, too. You hear that, buddy? You hear that? Is that the kind of freedom you have? You can put your butthole wherever you want. Yeah, it is true, actually. It's because you're cute. Just a rich family's cute cat. You can get away with anything. Exactly. And that's the life I want to live. I totally get that. 
Like, if I could be Meester for a day, 100% would. I just also, get to- maybe I'd want to be a chinchilla for a day, you know? Yeah. Oh, no. no. Uh, actually, if I was a Yith, I would just be random animals. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> fun. Would you hear Meester? Meester, I would be you. Uh, I would just sleep on top of a cat tree all day. And you then, would just like you would just look over and you'd be like, "Why is th- there's a cat brain in your body?" And you're just like, "Oh wow, look, they're just taking a nap like I normally would." We both would be taking a nap at the same time. <laughs> really, nothing would change so much. I wouldn't have to go to work. That's the one thing. Yeah, I have like the dumbest thing. There, like there was like a joke song that was put out called "I'm I'm." It's the I'm the biggest bird, and it's just stuck in my head. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, like it's like I'm the biggest bird. I'm the biggest bird. I <laughs> Hell, I can't. Uh, I want. I need to go back to where "Say So" is my my default song in yes. my head. An excellent <sighs> okay. song. We love like, our not queen. That I'm not interested in what they're talking about right now. I I just like I don't know. Just put this in a encyclopedia. I'll yeah. read it. I, I'd like maybe do some more action stuff. Yeah. But at the same time, I am enjoying it. I don't yeah. know. Uh, I, um, I keep, I keep like overthinking this and it's not like, okay. So the great race is described as being like, they can live thousands of years. They are incredibly intelligent. They can project their minds into other bodies. It's like, they're basically immortal. And yet, as described, they still cannot escape the end of the universe. Yeah. Which, which is, yeah. Which is uh, what gave me a lot of anxiety as a child. The, the like, idea that the sun would explode one day. Yeah, like, like, they specifically say, like, they, the whole, after the beetle people, they will eventually project themselves into the minds of these worm things, and they will burrow inside of their own planet and then just die, because everything else is going to die, too. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. I guess that is the point of Cosmic Horror. <laughs> well, it's like, I don't know. I think they should just get into absurdism instead of nihilism, you know? Yeah. It's like, make just, it fun. Yeah, just become a house cat. Yeah. Yeah. Get some scritches. Get some pets. Sleep all the time. You need nothing else. The Great Race seemed to form a single loosely knit nation or league with major institutions in common, though there were four distinct divisions. The political and economic system of each unit was a sort of fascistic socialism, with major resources rationally distributed and power delegated to a small governing board elected by the votes of all able to pass certain educational and psychological tests. Family organization was not overstressed, though ties among persons of common descent were recognized, and the young were generally reared by their parents. Resemblances to human attitudes and institutions were, of course, most marked in those fields, where, on the one hand, highly abstract elements were concerned, or where, on the other hand, there was a dominance of the basic, unspecialized urges common to all organic life. A few added likenesses came through conscious adoption as the great race probed the future and copied what it liked. Industry, highly mechanized, demanded but little time from each citizen, and the abundant leisure was filled with intellectual and aesthetic activities of all various sorts. The sciences were carried to an unbelievable height of development, 
and art was a vital part of life, though at the period of my dreams, it had passed its crest in the meridian. Technology was enormously stimulated through the constant struggle to survive, and to keep in existence the physical fabric of great cities imposed by the prodigious geologic upheavals of those primal days. Crime was surprisingly scanty and was dealt with through highly effective policing. Punishments ranged from privilege deprivation and imprisonments to death or major emotion wrenching, and were never administered without a careful study of the criminal's motivations. Warfare, largely civil for the last millennia, though sometimes waged against reptilian or octopodic invaders, or against the winged star-headed old ones, who centered in the Antarctic, was infrequent, though infinitely devastating. An enormous army using camera-like weapons which produced tremendous electrical effects was kept on hand for purposes seldom mentioned, but obviously connected with the ceaseless fear of the dark, windowless elder ruins and of the great sealed trapdoors in the lowest subterranean levels. So I'm wondering, because it was talked about in At the Mountains of Madness, that in the history of the Wiggly Boys, there was a point where, like, they tried to expand north, and then they were, like, they were met with, like, a force way greater than their own, and so they decided to stay, like, in the Antarctic and southern parts of the world. I wonder if it's because they ran into the Yith. It might be. Because the Yith are described as, like, living in very temperate areas. Like, they live in a jungle that sounds like it's, like, pretty humid and hot. So I'm wondering if perhaps the Wiggly Boys were like, yeah, we're going to expand. We're going to go somewhere warm. And then they were like, oh, fuck, never mind. We getting our asses handed to us. Yeah, I I imagine, like, if you were cosmically aware enough, you would learn about the Yith somehow. And you would probably look out for signs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like like your cat like looking real intently at what your passwords are whenever you're putting in <laughs> uh, your banking information. And it's like, what's going on here? Well, why, why are you doing this? <laughs> Maester, do you have my social security number? Are you opening credit cards in my name? He's like, no. Um, as long as you keep having aquariums, that's all I need. He watches my fish now. The fear of the basalt ruins and trapdoors was largely a matter of unspoken suggestion, or at most, affirmative quasi-whispers. Everything specific which bore on it was significantly absent from such books as were on the common shelves. It was the one subject lying altogether under a taboo among the great race, and seemed to be connected alike with horrible bygone struggles and with that future peril which would someday force the race to send its keener minds ahead in mass and time. Imperfect and fragmentary as were the other things presented by dreams and legends, this matter was still more bafflingly shrouded. The vague old mists avoided it, or perhaps all illusions had for some reason been excised, and in the dreams of myself and others, the hints were peculiarly few. Members of the great race never intentionally refer to the matter, and what could be gleaned came only from some of the more sharply observant captive minds. According to these scraps of information, the basis of fear was a horrible elder race of half-polypus, utterly alien entities, which had come through space 
from immeasurably distant universes and had dominated Earth in the three other solar planets about 600 million years ago. They were only partly material as we understand matter, and our type of consciousness and media of perception differed wholly from those of terrestrial organisms. For example, their senses did not include that of sight, their mental world being a strange, non-visual pattern of impressions. They were, however, sufficiently material to use implements of normal matter when in cosmic areas containing it, and they were required housing, albeit of a peculiar kind. Though their senses could penetrate all material barriers, their substance could not, and certain forms of electrical energy could wholly destroy them. They had the power of aerial motion despite the absence of wings or any other visible means of levitation. Their minds were of such texture that no exchange with them could be affected by the great race. Wait, sorry, sorry. I have one question. Uh -huh. Certain forms of electricity can destroy them. Isn't that everything? <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like most That's things die when you electrocute them. That's everything. Yeah. Like, except, no, like, even rubber will heat up enough. Yeah, that it'll melt. But enough and yeah. it'll melt. So, okay. It's kind of yeah. like the stake through the heart, like the wooden stake <laughs> through the heart of the silver bullet thing. Like, we're like, yeah, duh. Like, why not? It's, <laughs> like, like, it's like that scene in Scary Movie 3 when one of the Secret Service agents, like, chops the head off of one of the aliens with a shovel. They're like, if you remove their heads, they die. <laughs> and somebody else is like, yeah, we do too. <laughs> like, like I, I don't know if this is just like the neurodivergent person in me, but like, maybe we should just stop making a big deal about things that would just kill most living things. Yeah. As like, like their weakness. Like, uh, like a silver bullet kills a werewolf. Yeah, if I got shot, I'd probably die too. If you if you put us if you put a stake through my heart and then like just shoved my face filled with garlic to leave me dead in a tomb, yeah, I'll die too. I'll probably be dead forever. <laughs> like you don't need to put you don't need to sprinkle communion wafers everywhere. I'm already dead. You put something through my heart. <laughs> I do not need the Christ crackers to keep me dead. You can save them. Have a snack on your way home for murdering me. <laughs> but. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can electrocute anything and it'll die. Just saying. All right. <sighs> when these things had come to the earth, they had built mighty basalt cities of windowless towers and had preyed horribly upon the beings they found. Thus, it was when the minds of the great race sped across the void from the obscure transgalactic world known in the disturbing and debatable elk-down shards as Yith. The newcomers, with the instruments they created, had found it easy to subdue the predatory entities and drive them down to the caverns of Inner Earth, which they had already joined to their abodes and began to inhabit. When they had sealed the entrances and left them to their fate, afterward occupying most of their great cities, and preserving certain important buildings for reasons connected more with superstition than indifference, boldness, or scientific and historical zeal. Oh, I was trying to figure out if the world that the Great Race came from was Yith, or if these monsters are the Yith. 
I mean, that's pretty presumptive. Not everything that you disagree with is a monster. (laughs) That is true. That is true. That is true. Although the Yith kind of sucks in the in the greater span, because uh, <laughs> body snatching, uh, no boy, no. No. I think that they're saying that the great race is the Yith. I was kind of thinking that the that the uh, creatures that they're describing, though, are maybe the, like, crab creatures from um, uh, the Whisper in the... Yeah, the Whispers in the Darkness. Because they were described as being, like, not quite made out of the same matter as us. But, like, also, like, the way they described them, it made it sound like there was no difference between us. <laughs> you just couldn't take a picture of them. Yeah. But as the aeons passed, there came vague evil signs of the Elder Things were growing strong and numerous in the inner world. There were more sporadic interruptions of a particularly hideous character in certain small and remote cities of the Great Race, and in some of the deserted Elder Cities, which the great race had not peopled. Places where the paths to the gulfs below had not been properly sealed or guarded. After that, greater precautions were taken, and many of the paths were closed forever. So they got OSHA? (laughs) (laughs) Or like, hey, you have to put up a handrail here, and it's just like... (laughs) Wear a hard hat, put up a handrail. (laughs) Yes, you do have to wear safety glasses. I don't care if your eyes are on stocks. What if a piece of glass got in them? Not good. <laughs> and in some of the deserted elder cities, which the great race had not peopled, places where the paths to the gulfs below had not been properly sealed or guarded. After that, greater precautions were taken, and many of the paths were closed forever. Though a few were left with sealed trapdoors for strategic use in fighting the elder things. If ever they broke forth in unexpected places, fresh rifts caused by that self-same geologic change, which had choked some of the past and slowly lessened the number of outer world structures and ruins surviving from the conquered entities. The eruptions of the Elder Things must have been shocking beyond all description, since they had permanently colored the psychology of the Great Race. Such was fixed mood of horror that very aspect of the creatures was left unmentioned, and at no time was I able to gain a clear hint of what they looked like. There were veiled suggestions of a monstrous plasticity and of temporary lapses of visibility, while other fragmentary whispers refer to their control and military use of great winds, singular whistling noises from colossal footprints made of five circular toe marks seemed also to be associated with them. It was evident that the coming doom was so desperately feared by the great race, the doom that was one day to send millions of keen minds across the chasm of time to strange bodies in the safer future, had to do with the final successful eruption of the Elder Things. Mental projections down the ages had clearly foretold such a horror, and the great race had resolved that none who could escape should face it, that the foray would be a matter of vengeance rather than an attempt to reoccupy the outer world. They knew from the planet's later history, for the projections shewed the coming and going of subsequent races untroubled by the monstrous entities. Perhaps these entities had come to prefer Earth's inner abysses to the variable storm-ravaged surface, since light meant nothing to them. Perhaps, too, they were slowly weakening with the aeons. 
Indeed, it was known that they would be quite dead in the time of post-human beetle race, which the fleeing mines would tenant. Meanwhile, the great race maintained its cautious vigilance, with potent weapons and ceaselessly ready despite the horrified banishing of the subject from common speech and visible records. And always the shadow of nameless fear hung about the sealed trap doors in the dark windowless elder towers. And that's the end of chapter four. Well, oh, why are the towers know- elder? <laughs> they're, they're over <laughs> they're over sixty five. <laughs> they get the senior <laughs> discount. Do you have to <laughs> do, do you have to respect them because of quote unquote seniority? Yeah. <laughs> they're retired. <laughs> you have to respect them. They're living on social security, okay? Oh, I think I realized what they were talking about. I think they're talking about Shogoths. Okay. Yeah, that, that probably is it. Though. That would make more sense, because they are kind of placidic. Um, like, they aren't described as being super, like, cognitive. Like, or at least their minds work in a way that, like, the Wiggly Boys, like, didn't quite understand. Um, yeah. And even the Wiggly Boys were afraid of them. And were ultimately destroyed by them in their subterranean city. So that would well, make sense. If I'm remembering properly, they also could go really fast like a freight train and be real scary. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. It, because um, when the adventures, yeah, because when the, well, yeah, when the main character of At the Mounds of Madness went down there, all they found was Shogoths. And they were, like, pretending to be the Wiggly Boys. Yeah. Or, like, they were copying them. But, like, it, it was kind of like an uncanny valley copying. Like, they didn't quite get it right. Okay. I'm thinking it showed us. Kind of like neurotypical about. people treat uh, autistic people? Yes. Yeah. Yep. It's like, I don't know. You're weird. I don't like you. Why aren't you lying to people all the time and making a lot of eye contact for no reason? I don't need to. <laughs> I don't got looks coming in the eye. They can like, like unless unless somebody is deaf and they can read lips. I don't need to make eye contact. Yeah, just let me just let me let me uh, play Marvel Snap while you're talking. I'm listening. Yeah. Yeah. Like, maybe I'll say, God damn it, Shang-Chi, they just played a Shang-Chi. Like, maybe I'll do that every <laughs> once in a while, but like, you know, that's you fine. Do, you do say that a lot when you're playing Marvel Snap. <laughs> well, the thing is, is, okay, right now Shang-Chi is not in the meta, and I don't play the meta, so like, I don't have to deal with it. Oh, perfect. Good. Yeah. I don't play the meta because I'm better than all the other people. Yeah. I'm joking. I'm not better. I'm I'm <laughs> consistently I don't make infinite drink. I, I am in fact worse. <laughs> in fact, I lose all the time. <laughs> my but, favorite my favorite saying is still I'm not like other girls. I'm so much worse. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh Ithane's if, uh Ithane's uh Ianthe. <laughs> Ianthe. I can't say it. I I Ianthe. I think I, it's Ianthe. It, it's Ianthe. I was listening to the audiobook. <laughs> yeah, that's Ianthe's <laughs> thing 100%. <laughs> I'm not like other girls. I'm so much worse. She's terrible. Yeah. She's awful. God, I would I kiss love her it. on the mouth. I, God, just just give me give me that rat girl energy. <laughs> I would hold her bony hand. I don't give a shit. 
Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of uh, bony hands. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was, I mean, interesting. It brought up some interesting points. It's uh, Next time, I think, though, we're going to be more... Next chapter looks like it takes place more in the present than these last yeah. couple of chapters, so, which is kind of nice. Okay, don't get me wrong. I fucking love world building. I do. Yes. Like, there's... I, there's a reason why I've read all of Mystery Flesh Pit. Yeah, I love world building. I like learning, like, fun little facts about things. I'm just at the point right now where, you know, maybe, I don't know, describe someone being, like, real fucked up with fear right now. You know? Yeah. 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 That's, I came here for weebly men being fucked up by fear. Yeah, let, let the little gay boys feel real sad and and angry uh, or not angry sorry let the little gay boys feel bad and uh and and whatnot let them know unknowable terrors okay that's all i'm asking for yeah i want horrific revelations to come to light yeah yeah so all right but not that that being said i am going to enjoy this while i'm editing and listening to it later yes All right, well, this has been over in Smith, and remember, you are an irreplaceable gash in the fabric of reality. Your keening static howl is like no other, and if it faded from the abyss, the void that would remain would be unfillable, and the mansions of silence would forever fill with our lament. Okay, bye! Bye! Can I be expected to tolerate? Uh, so I started to think.